Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're taking a look at the 1990 version of Dick Tracy. This is actually the third time Dick Tracy has made it to the silver screen, although the first two were serials. We may come back and revisit those later. He'd also been turned into a TV series successfully twice, with an unaired pilot for a third attempt. Now he's not technically a superhero, but he does have very strong comic book roots, and I'm trying to put in a little bit of variety between long strings from existing franchises. And since our coverage of the X-Men films to date is going to kick off in April, we're going to be spending a lot of the year looking at X-Men. So I'm trying to break it up and I'll do a couple other one-off titles after the X-Men run is completed. So this film, as I said, is the 1990 version. It was originally released in the United States and Canada on June 15th, 1990. It was one of the earlier movies to have a midnight premiere, although they did something a little bit different. You couldn't buy tickets. You had to buy t-shirts with scannable barcodes for the admit one tickets on them. The initial sales weren't what they'd hoped for, so apparently some theaters broke the rules and sold the shirts on opening night instead of in advance only, but it was an interesting way to do it. I strongly suspect that they would have done better had they just sold straight-up tickets instead of the t-shirts. I'm guessing they did that hoping that the customers who were going to the movie that night would be wearing the t-shirts all day, or at least out to dinner beforehand and giving them some free advertising. So this is another movie with a pretty considerable cast. So I'll do a quick run-through of the cast and crew. Now, I'm not going to get into Warren Beatty's filmography. He was both the eventual director of this film and the star as Dick Tracy. He's got 32 acting credits to his name, including one that isn't released yet, which isn't a huge list, but it's a pretty notable list. There's very little on that list that isn't known, at least to some degree. This is one of his six directorial credits. He's got a few writing credits, soundtrack credits, producer credits. So he's been able to pick and choose his projects. He's also pretty well known, or at least has a pretty well known reputation for having a bit of an ego that's difficult to cope with. He's one of the likely candidates for Carly Simon's You're So Vain in terms of, you know, who that song was actually written about. And in this case, there were issues with the rights to the film. Tom Mankiewicz, who had earlier written the Superman films, the first one directed by Richard Donner, credited as creative consultant because he hadn't paid his WGA fees, and then the first draft of the sequel, some of which was kept, but much of which was rewritten when Donner was fired and had to rewrite the script to get the credit for the director to Richard Lester. In any event, he did obtain the rights to Dick Tracy when they were between studios. When Batman hit big, he managed to ride that superhero bandwagon to get this film made over at Disney. They were having a hard time finding directors who wanted to do it, so he agreed to be a director. They were also having a hard time finding an appropriate actor for the lead as Dick Tracy, and Warren Beatty was able to finagle both roles by saying, I'll direct it for you on the condition that I can play Dick Tracy. And since the studio is having a hard time filling both roles, since Warren Beatty was known and respected as both an actor and a director, and since a combination job like that usually pays a little bit less than the sum of having two different people do those two jobs, they agreed to it. It was basically a win-win situation. Now, there are rumors that the makeup artists tried Warren Beatty in the full Dick Tracy prosthetics, because this is based on a comic strip. And if you go back to Chester Gould's comic strip, He's got some very distinctive looks to these characters, and a lot of that comes through to the screen. There's really only two characters taken from the comics 
that aren't nearly perfect reproductions thanks to the makeup artists involved. And yeah, Dick Tracy is one of them. The official released reason is that the makeup artist put him in the makeup and said, no, I'd be ashamed to cover one of Hollywood's most famous faces in this much makeup. But there's a lot of Hollywood's most famous faces in this movie covered in makeup. It makes me wonder if that's the line and Warren Beatty just didn't want his particular face covered. It would be consistent with the rumors about his ego. We also have Charlie Cosmo playing the kid, which in the comic strip, which is still in production by Joe Staten and Mike Curtis, Dick Tracy Jr. is the current name of the kid, as it is by the end of this film, who recently had a child. So the comic strip is still in production today. Uh, it's actually fairly enjoyable. It's one of the few serialized strips, more adventure than comedy. And that's what we see here. There are comedic elements, but a lot of it is more crime drama, just as this film has comedic elements, but is a lot more about crime and very much a tribute to the gangster films of the 30s. Although it's never said in the dialogue, the film is set in 1938, around 1939. Big Boy Caprice, the character does reference New Year's coming up just around the corner, and Dick Tracy's recent paychecks list them as, you know, they've got dates of December 17th, 1938 in his bank balance. But it's only in that one scene when his finances are being sifted through that we actually get any sort of firm date for when this movie takes place. In any event, Charlie Cosmo is the the child actor at the time who played the kid, since Macaulay Culkin chose to make Home Alone instead. Now, you could debate whether or not that was the right choice for Culkin. It was definitely the more successful film. Because, I mean, Home Alone was huge, but perhaps if he'd been in a less successful movie, he wouldn't have had some of the issues that he's had since then in his personal life. In any event, Charlie Cosmo is still a working actor, at least to some degree. This is his second of seven credits. He was also in What About Bob, Hook, and Can't Hardly Wait. So his most recent credit was 1998. We've got Glenn Headley playing Tess Trueheart, who is a fairly faithful adaptation of Dick Tracy's love interest and now wife in the comic strip. Sabonor from the recent Don John, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Scarlett Johansson. Others would know her from Mr. Holland's Opus, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. To me, when I look at her now, I see her as Karen Stottlemyre, the wife of Chief Stottlemyre from the Monk TV series. And she actually does a fairly nice job with Tess Trueheart in this. Now, Seymour Castle needed pretty minimal makeup to take on the role of Dick Tracy's partner, Sam Ketchum. He's another one you'd know. 213 credits. The ones that IMDb says he's known for are Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, Indecent Proposal, and Life Aquatic with Steven Zissou. So he is definitely a well-known and recognizable actor. He's been working since 1935, appears to still be working. He's got upcoming films coming out. And even though he didn't have a lot of makeup, there was some there. And I think part of it is just because he was a talented actor who happens to look like Sam Ketchum. So he was easy casting choice, didn't need the makeup, and he still had that look. Now, James Keene is also known for Apocalypse Now, Crazy Heart, Sea Biscuit, and Falling Down, amongst many other credits. In here, he plays Pat Patton, Dick Tracy's other assistant in the police department. Now, Charles Durning of The Sting, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Tootsie, and The Hudsucker Proxy, as well as 206 other titles, is Chief Brandon here. So he is the police chief. Again, an effective role. Now, we start getting into the villains, or at least the femme fatales. Madonna is in here as Breathless Mahoney, and it was, seems to primarily be her scenes that caused Disney to not want to associate with her major brand and sort of send it over to the Touchstone Pictures brand instead. At one point, 
She's wearing a sheer black nighty and underwear, and the there are things, you know, nipples specifically visible through this sheer gown at some points, depending on the lighting and the setup of the camera. So I can understand why Disney felt, this isn't a Disney film, but we've got this touchstone imprint, we'll send it over there. Now, according to the IMDb, she's known for Evita desperately seeking Susan and Madonna Truth or Dare, but I think that's because it's sort of biased to pulling up people's acting credits. Madonna's had a few acting credits, but she'll be known first and foremost for her singing career. Regardless of what you think of her singing, there's actually university courses taught at some Ivy League universities about Madonna, usually through the business departments, because she is exceptional at marking herself. In fact, she got paid a pretty small amount for this film. She only got paid $35,000 for a major role in a major summer blockbuster with a $100 million budget. And I strongly suspect that the reason she took such a small paycheck is because her long-term plan for this was always to cash in more on the back end with soundtracks and whatnot. Because this does actually have a pretty good soundtrack. It's in the t- the tone of the 1930s musicals that were big in theaters at the time, just the start of the musical era. And she's singing a lot of these and performing a lot of these pieces. Some of which, I admit, are fairly catchy. They're more enjoyable than a lot of the songs she's written for herself, quite frankly. Now we're starting to get into some of the other ones. We're running through these actors primarily in the order of their appearance. Mandy Patinkin is in this, who's probably best known for The Princess Bride as the Spaniard. You know, his name was Inigo Montoya. You killed his father, prepared to die. He's also been in Dead Like Me, Homeland, Criminal Minds, Chicago Hope. So again, a very respected actor who's not the easiest one to pick out as 88 Keys. I watched it with a friend of mine who didn't recognize Mandy Patinkin as Mandy Patinkin, until later in the movie when he wore a hat and covered up the odd slicked hairstyle that he had for this. He was set up with a comb over. Now, Paul Sorvino of Goodfellas, Romeo and Juliet, Repo the Genetic Opera, and The Rocketeer, as well as several more, is in this film as Lips Manless, who's the original love interest of Madonna's character Breathless Mahoney, who is one of the first to get bumped off, following five of his underlings. Now, if you've seen Chester Gould's comic strip, As we said, we know a lot of these characters have very distinctive physical features, which often relate to their names. So he had Little Face, who's a man with a normal-sized head and a tiny face, which was achieved in this movie by putting a very young child inside a whole lot of makeup. There's a lot of these characters who, in the comic strip, went up against Dick Tracy one at a time. So we'd have an extended storyline with just one villain, or another villain, or another villain. This film restructured that. Warren Beatty was apparently justifiably concerned that the film may not have a sequel. So he jammed in as many of Chester Gould's villains as he possibly could. Which is a double-edged sword. When Tom Mankiewicz was doing it, he was just going to have two villains in there. And, you know, that would have set up a franchise nicely. You can bring in new villains each time and get a lot of mileage out of it. Putting them all in here at the beginning, on the upside, if it doesn't get a sequel, fans will be quite likely to see their favorite villain in this film, because they're pretty much all in there. The downside is that some of these favorite villains were turned into lackeys with bit parts. So while there are over 20 notable villains in here, some of them have very little development. Five of them play poker just long enough to get killed in an homage to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So, you know, if Littleface is one of your favorite villains from the comics, well, sorry, he's dead by the five-minute mark. Now, probably the most prominent actor to play the villains in this, and possibly the most prominent actor in the whole film at least in my opinion, we've got Al Pacino. I mean, he's been in the Godfather series, Scarface, Heat, a lot of others. Again, 51 credits is not the longest list that we'd see, 
but it's a very notable list. It doesn't take much to run through this and find recognizable titles. I suspect just about anyone would recognize the vast majority of the titles that we see on his IMDb listings, especially those following The Godfather. Now, he did his own designs for Big Boy Caprice in this. So the makeup was his idea. The big boy in the comics was a big boy. He was rather overweight. Al Pacino's idea was to have a normal guy with odd proportions. So unusually large hands, unusually large facial features, hunchback. And for the sake of this movie, it worked. Al Pacino sold it. And the makeup is heavy enough that he's not instantly recognizable, but you'll know it's him, especially when he speaks, because he's got that distinctive voice. And he does play big boy very effectively. You, You don't look at him and see the characters from The Godfather, even though he is now the head of a gangster. Big Boy is not a Corleone. So he did take a very similar character, and yet managed managed to avoid playing it the same way. Now, we have James Tolkien here. He's probably best known for playing, I guess, the entire Strickland family in the Back to the Future trilogy. He also had a role in Top Gun. I kept waiting for him to call Dick Tracy a slacker. He was in here in one of the few villains invented for the movie. He's Numbers. As I said, in the comic strip, most of these villains came after Dick Tracy one by one. His character here is basically the accountant to the bad guys. That's probably not going to be a character that's going to give Dick Tracy much trouble or even a good fit for him. Dick Tracy would really be an auditor to catch him more than anything else. He wasn't a physically imposing villain. He's not a leader, but he does play an important role once you're turning into a large organization and not a bunch of characters coming after things one at a time. Now, I'd say... The actor who's probably closest to Al Pacino in terms of notoriety, a very, very close second. Behind Al Pacino and ahead of Warren Beatty, we have Dustin Hoffman, who plays a bit part of Mumbles as a favor to Warren Beatty. Now, IMDb says he's best known for Kramer vs. Kramer, Tootsie, Rain Man, and The Graduate. With his 76 credits, it would be hard to pick out just four. It wouldn't surprise me if you could search for him on... 10 different days and find 10 different known for lists because so many of his titles are so prominent. Sci-fi fans might want to check out Stranger Than Fiction with him too. But he plays Mumbles pretty much bang on and has a lot of fun with it. In this, we've got a Before They Were Stars character of Kathy Bates as Mrs. Green. We've got a cameo of Dick Van Dyke as the corrupt district attorney who had a pretty short shooting schedule, partly because the scene where he dies in the take we have of the blank killing him, he accidentally broke his shoulder so they couldn't do a retake. So the take that's in the movie is the one where his shoulder is actually broken. So he does hit the ground pretty hard. He's probably best known for Mary Poppins, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Diagnosis Murder, possibly Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, IMDb lists, Night at the Museum. When I see him, I typically associate him with Mary Poppins. Now, another bit role just as a street officer, but one that may be notable to Bureau 42 readers, is Colin Meany, who's probably best known for playing Miles O'Brien, in Star Trek Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. He's also appeared in Con Air, Law Abiding Citizen, Damned United. So Star Trek is far and away his most recognizable role. Now, Catherine O'Hara, unlike Macaulay Culkin, was able to appear in both this and the Home Alone movies. She was also in the remake of Frank and Weenie in The Nightmare Before Christmas. And again, it's a fairly small role in this one. Now, James Caan has a short but important role on this, reuniting him with his co-stars from the Godfather film, Al Pacino. Khan is known for the Godfather, Misery, the new Las Vegas series, and Elf, amongst others. He plays the, you know, the token gang boss who doesn't play along with Al Pacino's character, 
just so he can be killed as an example to the rest. Now we've got a few seconds of Ian Wolfe as the forger. Shortly before he died, he actually passed away in early 1992. Now, he's listed as being known for Witness for the Prosecution, THX 1138, Rebel Without a Cause, and Reds. This was his last on-screen work, but I will always know him as Hirsch the Butler from WKRP in Cincinnati. He was only in four episodes, but he's very memorable from those four. In a similar sense, we've got Henry Jones as a classic actor, known for Vertigo, Butch and Sundance, Arachnophobia, Phyllis, numerous appearances on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He was in The Twilight Zone, so it's easy to recognize him. Well-known character actor. He's a night clerk in this one. There is a hotel scene in which Dick Van Dyke's character gets killed. He's the corrupt DA. Just about everyone you see in that hotel is there in some sort of cameo. Speaking of cameos, Estelle Parsons, who worked with Warren Beatty in Bonnie and Clyde, who's also known for Roseanne, Rachel Rachel, and Watermelon Man, plays the mother of Tess Trueheart. Michael J. Pollard was also in Bonnie and Clyde, as well as Scrooge, Arizona Dream, and Tango and Cash. He's in here as Bug Bailey. Now, Mike Mazurki is an old man in the hotel clerk, hotel lobby. Again, a very small role. He's in here because he played the villain in one of the early Dick Tracy serials, specifically Split Face. He was also in Some Like It Hot, Murder My Sweet, It's a Mad 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 World, Nightmare Alley, and a number of others. This is his second last credit. Those are the notables in terms of the on-screen personalities. There's also some people who are working behind the scenes. Now, there's only two writers credited on screen. One of them is Jim Cash Jr., who passed away at age 49 in the year 2000, with eight writing credits to his name. The first was Top Gun, then Legal Eagles, then Secret of My Success, Turner and Hooch, Dick Tracy, Anaconda, The Flintstones and Viva Rock Vegas, and Anaconda's Hunt for Blood Orchid. So it appears he got off to a good start, and after this one, it was all downhill. The second credited writer is Jack Epps Jr., who had 11 writing credits, originally Hawaii Five-O, Kojak, and Pigs and Freaks, and then clearly writing partners with Jim Cash, because from Top Gun through Anacondas, it's a point-for-point -point match. Now, the IMDb trivia says that the actual shooting draft of the script was created in an uncredited rewrite by Bo Goldman. It doesn't appear in his credit list at all, so I'm not sure why he would have been uncredited. He doesn't even appear as thank you or producer or creative consultant as Tom Mankiewicz was on the original Superman, but he has written One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Rose, Melvin and Howard, Little Nikita, Scent of a Woman, City Hall, and Meet Joe Black. The music was composed by Danny Elfman, who's probably best known for the theme to The Simpsons, as well as music for A Corpse Bride, Goodwill Hunting, the aforementioned Batman, Hulk, Spider-Man trilogy by Sam Raimi. He's got a pretty significant filmography as a composer in the music department. He has also referred to Warren Beatty as being insane and difficult to work with. Now, when this movie was being brought to screen, they did focus a lot on the look. We've got a lot of the vibrant primary colors. They were trying to recapture those early comic strips where you had a pretty limited palette, and they were all very, very bright. So I'm going to spend some little bit of time talking about the cinematographer, Vittorio Storaro, who is also known for Apocalypse Now, The Last Emperor, and The Last Tango in Paris. So he's done cinematography on a lot. Uh, Sci-fi fans may know him as a cinematographer from the Dune TV miniseries produced in the year 2000. So definitely an accomplished cinematographer. Richard Marks also worked on Godfather Part Two, As Good As It Gets, You've Got Mail, Julie and Julia, he was 
editor on this and 34 other titles, Spanglish, definitely some strong credits to his name. Now, Richard Silbert was the production designer, and that's where you get into a lot of the actual physical layouts of the movie, and that's where he does most of his work. He's best known for his work on Chinatown, The Graduate, Carlito's Way, and Rosemary's Baby. He's also done Mulholland Falls, Tequila Sunrise, Bonfire, The Vanities, Manchurian Candidate, the 1962 original. He definitely knows what he's doing, or at least he did until he passed away in 2003. Harold Michelson is the art director for this as his final art director credit of 14. He also worked on Spaceballs, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in Terms of Endearment. So it's actually his last four credits that show up as his four best-known credits. He got started with The Andy Griffith Show and Gomer Pyle USMC and worked from there. Now, Rick Simpson is the set decorator who is best known for his work on Casino, Armageddon, Rush Hour 2, and Too Fast, Too Furious. He also worked with Warren Beatty on Bullworth, and they've got a number of projects here. He's got 50 set director credits. And Milena Cananero is a costume designer who's best known for The Shining, Clockwork Orange, recent Academy Award winner for the Grand Budapest Hotel. She also did The Godfather Part 3. The makeup designers include, most prominently, John Caglioni Jr. Now, Al Pacino was so impressed with this, where he came in with his own designs for Big Boy's makeup, and John Caglioni Jr. nailed it. Caglioni has also done The Dark Knight, The Departed, Heat, American Gangster. Al Pacino insists that this man does his makeup in every project he's done since then. His makeup credits include 68 films, and if you run through the list, you will see a lot of them. We'll be talking about others in this series. We've already talked about Dark Knight. We will be talking about Amazing Spider-Man 2. So he's got a pretty substantial list of credits. So when you've got a team like this, you've got to have a great movie, right? We look at what this has. It's got all the trappings of the old serials and the comic strips, which helped inspire each other. They were popular at the same time for many of the same reasons. You've got those periodic cliffhangers in the serials every 10 to 15 minutes. In the comic strips, every three or four panels at the end of every day, there's something that brings it forward. You've got a wide and long list of people who are dedicated to their profession and are well known for producing good product. So this must have hit it out of the park, right? Not really. I enjoy it, but there's some things... And there's one scene where Dick Tracy jumps from a window ledge onto a light standard. Because of the production budget, they had to build all the scenes. So this light standard is clearly not as stable and as strong as a real one would be. It shakes a lot. And on top of that, Warren Beatty nails himself in the face when he's doing it. I could see why he wouldn't do another take. There are more than a few scenes where the editing could have been a little bit tighter. Looking at the editor's credits, I'm not going to blame him for that. I think some of this may have been Warren Beatty saying, no, I like that shot. Apparently Warren Beatty's first cut that was turned over to Disney was over two hours. It was 135 minutes. They had to trim it down to 105 minutes for the release. So there is a cut of this film that's got another half hour's worth of material in it. Now, overall, it's not, I wouldn't say, an artistic failure. It takes some liberties. One of the villains we haven't mentioned yet is the blank. That's sort of a, feels like a secondary character at first. Through most of the film, it's Dick Tracy versus Big Boy. And Big Boy's got the other gangs under his control and corrals them all together. And that's the way it's really set up in terms of the dynamics between them. We soon learn that the blank, you know, a villain with a blank face, is pulling the strings from behind the scenes. And there's a question of who that is. It does turn out to be one of the more prominent characters. When Max Allen Collins adapted this to a novel, they released two versions. And the version that was released before the film came out did not spoil who the blank was. The version that was released later did, you know, because the movie was already out at that point. 
So I'm not going to spoil it here, because this movie is worth checking out if you can get it at a decent price. It's not a terribly difficult mystery, but just in case you don't put it together, I'm not going to point it out to you. I could see why some purists would have issues with that, because they essentially amalgamated two comic book characters who were unquestionably two completely different characters in the source material. But as this goes, we get a lot of the standard police dramas, right? We start off with that super cop who maybe bends some rules. He ends up getting framed by the bad guys so they can get their free hand. He has to prove his innocence, rescue his girlfriend. It's pretty standard and fairly predictable. There were some interesting choices made trying to simulate deep focus, because having the camera focus on both the foreground and the background at the same time is a challenge. Orson Welles managed to pull it off in Citizen Kane, just as Fritz Lang had done prior to that in M. It's been done a few times since. Here they were trying to use technology to make it easier, so they do a composite shot where half the shot is filmed at one point, another half is filmed somewhere else, and the two are kind of spliced and melded together. Not always effectively. When the kid is reaching for Dick Tracy's badge, the corner of the badge is missing from the screen, and there's a blurred line where things cross. There's other blurred lines in a greenhouse scene. A lot of times when they're doing that composite to put two shots together, it's pretty blatantly obvious that that's what's being done. It was fairly new technology in terms of trying to do it seamlessly at the time. The technology has existed since King Kong in 1933, but there they were doing the composites by filming the two separately and then projecting one onto a screen and then filming the screen while they were filming everything else. So it actually was more successful in King Kong in 1933, but that's more challenging to set up in 1990. So what they tried here wasn't totally convincing, but it did break down some barriers and make some progress towards what we could do today where it does work. Actually, a lot of primetime TV is doing this now. I've seen it in CSI as early as season two, where people don't necessarily realize the actors that you're seeing in the same scene were not even in the same room when it was filmed. So now in terms of the box office, we can look at that to see how successful it was. Now remember a rule of thumb is that a movie's domestic gross has to be two to three times the budget in order to be considered a financial success. By the time the film studio that produced it has paid their shares to the distributor, to the creators, to the exhibitors or the theaters that are showing it, they only have a slice of that box office ticket left. So with an estimated budget of $100 million, you're looking at somewhere between two and $300 million domestic gross before you can really be sure it's a success. This one grossed $103 million $738,726 in the U.S. So it's pretty much on par with the budget. So if the U.S. theatrical release was the only source of money for this film, it would have lost money. And comparing it worldwide, it did bring in another $59 million internationally. So that helped. It brought it up to the basically $163 million mark. It's still unlikely that it's actually going to turn a profit just from that. Now the rental sales in the United States brought in almost 61 million. It was 60,611,000. So when you add that to it, you know, that brings your domestic gross up to about $165 million, brings the worldwide up to, you know, about 230 or 225 million. So now we're getting to the point where we might actually be breaking even. I don't know what the DVD sales numbers are. Those aren't accessible through any website I'm aware of, but it's possible that this movie has now started to show a return and has gotten into the black. And that's something I I hope it does. I think it's flawed. There's some, as I said, there's some shots that linger a little too long. Uh, would have been nice had they not used or at least not killed so many of the classic villains, because there wasn't a lot of villains left to make a good sequel by the time this film is done. 
I mean, there's really only a couple that survive, and Mumbles is not presented to someone who can carry his own movie down the road. The rest end up in prison, so if they get out somehow, well, that undermines this movie. It would have been nice if they, you know, sort of left something for the sequel so that people could pick up on it. Not that there would have been a sequel with these box office numbers. But still, despite the fact that it's not necessarily profitable, it is to date the highest grossing film of Warren Beatty's career. So he's respected by the industry as a filmmaker and as an actor, and audiences tend to like him well enough to show up for most of his movies, but they don't necessarily show up at enough numbers to make a big-budget action feature such as this one turn a profit. A smaller film like Abolini and Clyde, well, that's a different story. So at any rate, that wraps up what we have to say about Dick Tracy. So join us again next month as we kick off our look at the X-Men franchise. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes and or Stitcher, or pass along links to people that you know who may enjoy the series. And thank you for listening.